Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you play a sport yourself. Uh, I remember one year spending a lot of time in snooker's world, playing snooker with Aaron Jahan. We see Aaron sometimes, he comes up from Carmarthen. And uh, I thought quite a lot of myself. I think we must have played about 20 games and he never beat me. Close, a lot of times, but I just had this way of keeping the white ball safe and making sure that he never beat me. And then, of course, the World Championships come on from Sheffield. And the level of ability and skill that those guys have at the highest level, just the contrast is, well, it showed me that I wasn't up to much, even if it was Aaron I was beating every single week. And uh, we're carrying on with our look at Mark's gospel. And this week, we come across um, a contrast that Mark very deliberately puts in our path. Um, He contrasts for us two groups of people or or two individuals, if you like, um, and puts it in a sort of an us versus them kind of context. Now, I think that us versus them contrast is something that we're very familiar with, isn't it? We like to think of ourselves in different ways to other people, perhaps. Sometimes that causes us fear. Sometimes that causes us to have hope. It, It can play out in many different ways. But here's what Mark is doing. He's introducing us in chapter 7, which is where we will be, to two groups who really are after the same thing. But in how they're seeking to get it, or what they think them getting it looks like, couldn't be more different. There's a huge, huge contrast. And the thing that they're uh, wanting, the thing that they think that they're part of, my clicker can go back to working. It's gone off is a little bit of what John was reading out when he was explaining uh, the remembrance. He showed you those pictures from uh, the UN. And um, can you have the next slide? There we are. And it was a picture of a future that Isaiah the prophet was given by the Lord. And in Mark chapter 7, by all means, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, because that's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. Um, you have people who are after this very specific picture of what the future could be like. Um, In many senses, we are people who live in a world that has been governed by the sacrifice made uh, by people a hundred years ago, aren't we? That's part of what Remembrance Sunday is, is remembering that there are people who had a vision for a future for them, for their children, for their children's children, and so on. And we live in part of that future because of what they have done. Well, in Isaiah chapter 2, and I'm just going to read you the first five verses, Isaiah is given this picture of a future from the Lord, what God is going to achieve. And then Mark is going to show us, introduce us to two groups of people who want some of that, but think about getting it in very different ways. Isaiah chapter 2, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's table will be established as the highest of the mountains. 
It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, there's actually so many different kind of avenues, streams, strings to that future. Um, The one that jumps out at us most clearly is this picture of peace, of weapons, spears, swords being turned to a different use. And John kind of touched on it a little bit in his, in his talk, that one of the most fantastic things about that isn't just the idea of there being an absence of war, an absence of evil and disagreement, but those tools are actually being used for something else, something positive. This is a world, Isaiah says, not where we are free from fighting one another, but actually our time and our effort and our energy are spent supporting one another encouraging one another, feeding one another. What a beautiful picture for a future, isn't it? Not just where we don't argue and fight, but where we love one another as the Lord has commanded us to love. But there are other parts to it. There is this idea of God at last, real, really, in our, in our, in our sight, in our understanding, in our experience of things, being in charge. Of it not being corrupt people, of weak people, of fallen people who are governing for their own interests and their own ends, but a God who is ruling for righteousness, for justice, for perfection, for everybody to enjoy. It's a picture of God's presence amongst the people in a special way. That's what all that imagery of temples and mountains and things like that. It's a, it's a future where we know and we understand who God is and what He expects from us. Where we don't, in a sense, need to come to church to have lessons. We don't need to sit uh, in quiet, special spaces with special questions, studying our Bibles to try and figure things out, where God Himself is there and revealing it to us. It's a picture of a world like that that occupies actually the whole world, where all peoples, it says, come and are part of this. It's a perfect world in which God is God, not just over a small segment, but all of it. And it's a world that, when you think of it, even in its shadowisty forms, Sounds appealing, doesn't it? It sounds like something you want to be part of rather than excluded of from. And so that really is the idea we need to come to Mark chapter 7 when we meet two contrasting groups of people or two contrasting individuals who want to be a part of this, who want to enjoy that in different ways. Uh, Next slide, please. The first part is Jesus meeting the Pharisees. So if you've got chapter 7 open, let's read verses 1 to 13 together. We've met the Pharisees on several occasions already. They're the kind of extremely religious people. 
we might say they're the, the over-the-top religious people in our kind of community, in our context. Um, and they've been confused by Jesus, the things that he said, the way that he's acted, everything um, that Jesus comes and declares really muddles them up in their thinking. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Then Mark explains that to us, why that's so confusing for them. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So you've got these people who, for whatever reason, think it's really, really important to ceremonially wash things when you're coming to eat together. So it says, verse 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of our elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And then Jesus' reply, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like this. Just kind of by way of explaining what Jesus says there, this whole idea of something being Corban, um, they come to him these Pharisees, and their posture is one, I think it's fair to say, of judgmentalism. They come and they want to uh, rule over, lord over how Jesus and his followers act. They are confused and they don't like it. And it's not so much a genuine question, ah, oh, well, this is different. You know, sometimes you might go abroad, go to a different culture, and you might ask the question, well, why do you do things like this? Why, why do people do that on a regular basis? And, it, and it's one of genuine inquisitiveness. That's not what's happening here. It's one of judgmentalism and of wanting really through Jesus' followers to accuse him of not being up to scratch. And Jesus calls them out. Jesus says, well, if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about it. You have become people who follow the traditions of men rather than the laws of God. And he gives a, um, a, a harsh um, verdict from the prophet Isaiah, but he also gives them a specific, solid example from their lives, where God has commanded that children honor their fathers and mothers, that they care for them. That is in terms of how they treat them and respect them, but also in the idea, the sense that when their parents are elderly, and they're in need of care, financial support, and things like that, that it's the children's responsibility to look after them. 
But there was this practice that had emerged that when children fell out with their parents, they'd make this great declaration. All that belongs to me is Corban, that is, now belongs to the Lord. That if God needs my stuff, it's there for him. And they'd formed these rules and these regulations in such a way that in their ways of thinking, in their ways of acting, it was now illegal for that person to use any of their money or their possessions to help their parents. They didn't actually give their money and their possessions to the temple, to the Lord. They were just kind of in theory saying, well, now it's not available for you. It's available to serve God. And Jesus says, look at yourselves. You come in as the religious elite. You come in as the people who are supposed to know God and are supposed to um, know how to be right with God. You come in as people who apparently think they should occupy that vision, that future that Isaiah shared. But you're ignoring God. You're living life your way, or in the way that your mates think you should live life, even when that is explicitly contradicting what God has told you. He basically says, boy, oh boy, have you got things wrong? Have you totally and utterly not understood your right from your left? These guys, when you think about it, it's amazing, isn't it? They are literally occupying the space that Isaiah has prophesied that um, um, the new world is going to come out from. They're literally there up on that mountain, in that temple. They They are the ones, the sons of Jacob, apparently. And yet, it would appear that they are in serious danger of missing out on that because of their pride and because of their arrogance and their hardness of heart towards Jesus. Let's go to the uh, second part then, the second individual that Jesus introduces us to who is totally and utterly different. You cannot imagine a greater contrast uh, between the Pharisees and this next person. Uh, It's a little bit further down in chapter 7. We're going to start from verse 24. Jesus left that place and went into the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Who is this woman, and how is she so greatly contrasted with the Pharisees? Well, Mark actually goes into quite a lot of detail about her background. He mentions that she's a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. He mentions that it's entire um, outside the geographical boundaries of Israel that Jesus meets her. 
Basically, she is someone who in no way, shape, or form has ever lived, ever thought, ever really acted in such a way to be considered part of that future that Isaiah prophesied. If the Pharisee's attitude is, we are by rights going to enjoy that, and we're going to make sure that we remain in part of that by how we live in a regimented, legalistic way, here comes a woman who, in all of her heritage, in all of her cultural upbringing, in all of her past and experience, it's amazing to know that she would even consider that future as a possibility. She doesn't know God She's never lived in such a way as to think that she might be acceptable to him. She's never gone out of her way to, to, to wash or to pray or to give or to do any of those things so that she can enjoy that future. She's just someone who's heard about Jesus. Now, this story in particular causes people problems because it seems like when she makes a reasonable request to Jesus in the same way that other people have in the, in the rest of the Gospels, that Jesus basically says to her, no, no, I'm not going to do that for you. And when you get to Jesus' response, it kind of feels like Jesus is saying, no, actually, what I've come to do is for other people, other people not like you. It feels like that, doesn't it? Especially when he uses emotive language like, well, first of all, the children have to eat. It's not right to give their food, their bread, and toss it to the dogs. And we think, oh my goodness, how could Jesus ever say something like that? How could Jesus ever be so cold and so harsh? Well, there's a few things going on here. First of all, the language of her being a dog isn't as harsh as we probably think about it. Um, it's actually more like a description of a beloved family pet. Um, and also, Jesus is speaking here in a parable, as he does in other places. And so, not everything is to be taken as literally and as coldly as you might expect. But they have this very interesting conversation where Jesus says, these markers of Isaiah's future that have been poured out so far in my ministry, uh, healing, um, exorcism, uh, an abundance of food, relationship and closeness with me, forgiveness of sins, all those things that as we've been walking our way through Mark's gospel, we've been saying there's Jesus demonstrating that he's a king, bringing a kingdom, actually that he's the one who's bringing in Isaiah 2's vision of the future. Jesus says those aren't ready yet to go out further than the scope of where I've been showing them, displaying them. Um, there's, there's a real sense in which the whole picture of Isaiah 2 isn't ready yet to be experienced and fulfilled, isn't it? That time of God sitting on a throne amongst us, of people knowing, of people understanding, of peace, of love, proper love between all people that it's not the time for that yet. Um, what's confusing is that as we've walked our way through Mark, there have been glimpses of that future being experienced now. And that really is what this woman's request is. Her woman, this woman's request is that future that you've been preaching and teaching and declaring and demonstrating in small measure in, in the lives of certain individuals 
She says, I want a little piece of that, and I want it now. That's her request. And Jesus says to her, yes. Jesus says to her, yes. Think again about the posture that she demonstrates compared to the posture that the Pharisees had demonstrated. They come, and they stand in judgment over Jesus and his followers, and they ask a question, but really they accuse him. They accuse him of not being up to scratch. Here is a woman who bows down, falls at his feet, and begs him and calls him Lord. And really, Mark has given us these two cases, these two groups, in order to show us who Isaiah's future, Isaiah's vision of the future is for. Is it for the Pharisees? who think that that's a place that they should occupy and will occupy because how they've lived their lives? Or is it for someone like this woman who not understanding, who not knowing, who not living or acting in an appropriate way comes to Jesus and throws herself at his feet? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, which group of people Jesus think that Isaiah 2 future is for. To the Pharisees, he uh, announces a harsh criticism of them and their way of life. And to her, he says, verse 29, for such a reply, you may go. It is done. Yes, you can be part of that kingdom. And in between the two stories, next slide, there's um, what I'm going to call the intermission. And it's when you see these two attitudes or ideas of how you are going to take your place, how you're going to experience that vision for the future, that this section really starts to make sense to us. Verses 14 to 23, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It, uh, if you think the criticism of the Pharisees in the first section is harsh, here is Jesus speaking on a base level about all humanity. And he says, well, what is it that separates us from God? What is it that makes it unacceptable? Is it how we wash our hands? Is it how we follow rules and regulations? Is it geographically where we live? Or is it our hearts? It's our hearts, he says. If you're worried, if you're questioning whether or not that future of Isaiah 2 is a place for you to come and enjoy... Jesus says, with a heart like that, no way, no chance. I mean, when you think about this description, 
Imagine a world filled with people like that. We don't have to imagine very hard because that's the world that we live in. And on today, of all days, we remember just how gruesome, just how horrific that world can be. Where nations slaughter one another. Where innocent people are called to give their lives for causes and um, schemes that they know nothing of. Where people manipulate countries and uh, ideologies and governments for their own selfish gain at the expense of anyone and everyone. Where even in our own little lives, we live in such ways that we use others in order to bring ourselves satisfaction and happiness and stability. And Jesus says, that sort of thing isn't dependent on your religious rule living. That sort of thing is dependent on the state of your heart. To the contrast and that bad news, Jesus says, I can make you clean. I can fix what's wrong. I can make it so that that world is a world for you to know and to enjoy and to experience. Here's the good news for us as people who probably can't really relate either to the Pharisees or the Greek Phoenician woman. Jesus still says yes to us. Jesus still says yes to you. If you come to him humbly and honestly wanting to be a part of his kingdom, of his family, of Isaiah 2's future, Jesus says you can. But it's not by your own merits. It's not by the strength of your army, metaphorically speaking. It's not by your own ability to keep rules and to add rules and to make sure that you are good enough to live in that world. No, it's because Jesus has come to give us a heart transplant. That in living in a way where none of those things could be said to be true of him, as coming in a perfect humanity, dying in our place and rising to life again and offering us to be joined with him in that, Jesus says, yes, you can be part of that perfect future. I wonder whether you've laid claim to that whether you've asked Jesus to be a part of that yet in your life. What is it that stands in your way? Maybe you are more like a Pharisee, whether you recognize it or not. And you think that there's no need to ask Jesus because in and of yourself, you are the sort of person who should live in that future. Take some time. Read Matthew 7, that description of the human heart with open and honest eyes. None of us are fit to live in that world ourselves. Maybe you're like that woman who lives far away, who has lived in a way that for most people would say totally and utterly counts you out for good forever. And maybe you've come to Jesus and you've heard Jesus speak as we've been going through Mark's gospel and you think, ah, it seems like there's some sort of barrier there's some reason why he might say no. Persist. 
mimic her, fall at his feet, call him Lord, and I guarantee you Jesus will say yes. Here's the good news, is that that vision of a future that Isaiah gave in chapter 2 is for anyone and everyone who would come to Jesus and call him Lord. Very quickly to finish, I want us to think about actually what this woman is doing in coming to Jesus and asking to be a part of that future. She's not just wanting to experience it in an abstract, abstract sense in the future, which is very much how we often think about life and death, Christianity, salvation, eternal life. The Pharisees just wanted, at some point in the future, for this picture to be unleashed and for them to be a part of it and experience it. She was asking, wasn't she, for the reality that was to come, to come now in part. And it reminded me this week as I was preparing it, the next slide, please, Gabe, of Jesus teaching his followers to pray. She was, in essence, bowing before Jesus and saying, Thy kingdom come on earth now as it will be in the future. I wonder, as people who have been given that resounding yes from Jesus, that we will get to live in it and to experience it and to enjoy it in its fullness, how many of us are happy just for that to be a future event? a future reality, something to be experienced as and when the Lord sees fit. It, it has been amazing to me this week to consider the fact that Jesus commands us to pray more of that future reality right now, please. Thy kingdom come. Isaiah 2, not in the future, but in the present. I wonder how often we pray like that, Lord, come. Lord, your peace be with us, your grace. I wonder how often we pray that the world would be filled no longer with tears and tyrants, but with God and grace. That it not just be something that we encourage ourselves for the future about, but we experience and enjoy even today. I think the real challenge for us from this Grecian woman isn't simply that she comes and she falls at Jesus' feet, but that she expects him to do now what he's promised to do in the future. And that's the challenge for us as Christians then. Not whether you have come to Jesus or not, but whether you want more of Jesus now. Whether you want that reality of him ruling and reigning in your life and in the lives of those of people around us and around the globe now. Do we pray like that? Do we live like that? Do we think like that's a possibility? Or do we put it off and assume that it's something that we will get in the future and make do with that? I want us to take that lesson from her this morning. To seek Jesus out and to beg him. In Matthew's gospel, she's a woman who comes time and time and time again asking the same thing, Lord, Free my daughter, Lord, your kingdom come. To have that attitude of seeking that future even today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing together. Lord God, we thank you for these contrasting groups of people, these contrasting individuals, people who assumed that in the future maybe 
they would get to occupy um, this glorious place because of what they have done and who they are. Compared to this woman who, thinking nothing of herself, but thinking everything of Jesus, thought that she might even be able to experience a part of it today. Lord, I pray that you would give us the humility to see that we are not free to come into your presence on our own. Lord, that we need that heart transplant that Jesus is willing to give. But Lord, more than that, that it's not just something for the future, but that it's something to be enjoyed today. Lord, we pray for your peace. We pray for your grace. We pray for your rule and for your justice and for your love and for your glory to be realities to us now in a greater way than we've experienced them ever in our lives before. In a greater reality in our communities, Lord, in our nation. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven right now. In Jesus' name, amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.